Hey there, folks. This is Rich Outfield, and you are listening to the podcast that dares not speak its name. I. Now that is interesting. I don't believe in ghosts, but wow, that's scary. The Eyes of a Stranger by the Paolas just started playing. <laughs> okay, that'll be our intro music. Yeah, that's effed up, dude. All right, so today I've got something special for you. I don't know if this is just for my Patreon supporters or for everyone, but I am anxious to put this episode out. I might bump this sucker way, way up so that I can share it with you immediately. <laughs> so here's the deal. I'm at the family cabin by myself, as usual. I've been blogging. I've been writing. Uh, I, was, I, I brought a book, and I haven't even cracked it. I wanted to read it. I still do. But somebody mentioned this week how much they liked my Stephen King narrations. That was on Patreon. So one of you did. And then this same week, somebody on Facebook, who's not one of the Patreon supporters, messaged me and said that there were some Stephen King audiobooks that had been uploaded to YouTube and that they really, really enjoyed the narration, but they missed hearing mine. And they, they talked about Frank Muller's production of The Jaunt, which is one of my favorite of King's stories. And it was one that I always wanted to run here on this show and never did. Uh, if you recall, I got a cease and desist from, and it, it, was, it claimed it was from Stephen King himself. I'm sure it was not because I had been putting out uncollected Stephen King stories, you know, like lost stories and things like that on, on YouTube, which I felt like would be safe. And then I made the mistake of putting out one that... Uh, was available commercially, and they caught me on that. And I, you know, I, it was it was not something that I had the rights to do, and so they were right to catch me on that. I wish that they had left it up and just said, you know, any monetization that comes, we get because they really are a labor of love. These these readings that I do, I I am such a fan, and I am so influenced by the man's writing. And, and if you're not a fan, you know, I get that. His stuff is not for everyone. Growing up, I would get askance looks from adults that saw me reading Stephen King. And even people my own age were insistent that he was a bad man. And yet, I, I don't know that I would have become a writer such that I am if it weren't for him and his stories and their impact that they had on me. There, there are a handful of people that really, really influenced me. And as far as writing goes, it's Uncle Steve and it's a guy named Daniel Cohen that are the, the big progenitors of me wanting to write stories. The first story that I wrote that I remember was in first grade, or it might have been the year between kindergarten and first grade. It was The Adventure of a Dog that was, you know, encountered various animals and and interacted with them. I mean, of course, I was pre-Stephen King in my life. But anyway, after having gotten two 
emails from two different people about the Stephen King narrations, I made a list of stories that if I could do them, I would. And of course, the jaunt is still number one, but because there was that reading uploaded to YouTube, it was Frank Muller, the greatest audiobook narrator of all time. I didn't choose to do that one. In fact, I wanted to sit down and listen to it and just hear how good it was. I have already done a, a reading of that story years ago, and I don't know if I even have it anymore, but it was something that I produced just out of passion before I ever got into a podcasting. And, uh, I, you know, I wish that I had gotten into podcasting a little earlier than I did, but I was never a fast writer, and to produce audio of my own work, it's a very slow process, and I, I tend to be, if not a perfectionist, I lean toward that, and I know that little mistakes slip through, but they eat me up inside. I, I, oh, I hate it. I made a list, like I said, of the stories that I would like to produce in audio that are just my favorites that I would enjoy sharing and that I think I would do justice to. And yesterday, before I left for the cabin, I thought, oh, you know, I should grab a collection of King stories and produce one of them. But I, I was already leaving when I had this thought my stuff is still just like all stacked in boxes and it would be far easier to go to the library and check out a copy of Skeleton Crew or Night Shift or Dreams and or Nightmares and Dreamscapes than to try and find my own copies. I didn't do it, but I got here and the first thing that I did, there's a, a, a short story collection that I have in my suitcase. It's a British collection, and so most of the stories are by authors that I've never heard of, or very old stories, or both. And I have done some stories from it in audio. Mostly I haven't released them because they don't belong to me, and uh, a lot of times I just don't like them that much. But there are some by authors who are in the public domain, and I, I could very easily put out an episode with a story from that, but I haven't. I knew that there was one Stephen King story in the book, and I thought that it was Suffer the Little Children. And I said to myself, I'm going to look, and if, if it's either Nona or Suffer the Little Children, I will do it in audio. But if it's something else, I won't. And I opened it and it was Suffer the Little Children. And so I said to myself, okay, I'm going to do this as an episode. I guess that's what I will present to you right now. But it's been raining. It was raining torrentially, like so badly while I was driving to the cabin yesterday that it was scary while driving. The speed limit is 65. There are some stretches where it's 55. And I was going about 15 to 20 miles an hour because A, the visibility was completely gone. I had the windshield wipers as high as they could go. So they were just going choo, 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 And then also the roads were flooded enough 
that you would hit big pockets of water and it would spray up 10, 12 feet in the air, higher than that maybe, if you were going faster. And some of the trucks ahead of me were just sending walls of water up into the sky. Sometimes I could see it, sometimes I couldn't because of the, the how much the rain was, was hitting. So when I got here and it was raining, I, was, I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to do audio. But when I woke up this morning, it was sunny and clear. And so I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll do it today and that'll be fine. But as the heat of the day goes on, all of the logs that this cabin was built from start to expand and pop and snap and crackle and they're great. And it becomes a cacophony. There's a point at, I don't know if it's like one or two in the afternoon, when it becomes so loud, it's as though there are gremlins dancing and jumping and rattling the top of the cabin. You w probably wouldn't believe how loud it is if I told you. You'd have to experience it for yourself because the first couple of times that I experienced it, I thought, there are monkeys here in the forest and they are having an orgy on the roof. There's no other explanation. So I knew that I had to do it fairly early. And before that, though, I, I started to write and I started to edit audio. And then I heard this big crash of thunder. And it was so loud that it, you know, it's the kind that like will shake the windows. And I thought, oh, no. And as I sat saying, oh, no, the sunlight started to fade. It, it got visibly darker in the next 10 or 15 seconds. And so I thought, oh, shoot, I have to run and do that audiobook right now, do that recording right now. And I chose to go down to my dad's basement, which is the lower level of the cabin. It's a subterranean windowless corner of the cabin that only has a bed and a dresser on it. It is always cold and always dark in that room. So much so that the the walls have started to, what, what do you call it when your fingers, when you've been in the bathtub too long and your fingers start to prune, the walls have done that from just like, there's always moisture. There's always something. It's dank in that room and I never go in there. Uh, but I, because I love you guys, I went in there to do this story. And before I was done, my hands were cold. My fingers were cold. Luckily, I had socks on. It was as though I had been outside or, you know, in a cellar, which essentially I was. I'm going to present this to you. I can't believe I've been talking for how long? Oh, my gosh, 15 minutes before presenting this to you. But th this is nothing new. You know what I do. You know who I am. You knew what I was when you picked me up. Suffer, the little children, if you will. Uh, enjoy. Suffer, the little children. By Stephen King. Miss Sidley was her name. And teaching was her game. She was a small woman who had to reach on tiptoes to write on the highest level of the blackboard, which she was doing now. Behind her, none of the children giggled or whispered or munched on secret sweets held in cupped hands. They knew Miss Sidley too well. 
Miss Sidley knew instinctively who was chewing gum at the back of the room, who had a bean-shooter in his pocket, who wanted to go to the bathroom to trade baseball cards rather than use the facilities. Like God, she seemed to know everything all at once. She was graying, and the brace she wore to support her failing back was lined clearly against her print dress. Small, constantly suffering, gimlet-eyed woman. But they feared her. Her tongue was a schoolyard legend. Her eyes, when turned on a giggler or a whisperer, could turn the stoutest knees to water. Now, writing the day's list of spelling words on the slate, she reflected that the success of her long teaching career could be summed and checked and proven by this one everyday action. She could turn her back on her pupils in confidence. Vacation, she said, pronouncing the word as she wrote it in her firm, no-nonsense script. Edward, you will please use the word vacation in the sentence. I went on a vacation to New York City, Edward piped. Then, as Miss Sidley had taught, he repeated the word carefully, vacation. Very good, Edward. She began the next word. She had her little tricks, of course. Success, she firmly believed, depended as much upon taking note of little things as it did upon the big ones. She applied the principle constantly in the classroom, and it never failed. Jane, she said quietly. Jane, who had been furtively perusing her reader, looked up guiltily. Close that book right now, please. The book shut. Jane looked pale, hating eyes at Miss Sidley's back. And you will stay for fifteen minutes after the final bell. Jane's lips trembled. Yes, Miss Sidley. One of her little tricks was the careful use of her glasses. The whole class was reflected to her in their thick glasses, and she had always been thinly amused by their guiltily frightened faces when she caught them at their nasty little games. Now she saw a phantomish, distorted Robert in the first row wrinkle his nose. She did not speak. Robert would hang himself if given just a little more rope. "'Tomorrow,' she pronounced clearly. "'Robert, you will please use the word tomorrow in a sentence.' Robert frowned over the problem. The classroom was hushed and sleepy in the late September sun. The electric clock over the door buzzed a rumor of three o'clock dismissal just a half hour away, and the only thing that kept young heads from drowsing over their spellers was the silent, ominous threat of Miss Sidley's back. I am waiting, Robert. Tomorrow a bad thing will happen, Robert said. The words were perfectly innocuous, but Miss Sidley, with the seventh sense that all strict disciplinarians have, could sense a double meaning. Tomorrow, Robert finished. His hands were folded neatly on the desk, and he wrinkled his nose again. He also smiled a tiny side-of-the-mouth smile. Miss Sidley was suddenly, unaccountably sure Robert knew her little trick with the glasses. Very well. She began to write the next word with no comment of commendation for Robert, letting her straight body speak its own message. 
She watched carefully with one eye. Soon Robert would stick out his tongue or make that disgusting finger gesture just to see if she really knew what he was doing. Then he would be punished. The reflection was small, ghostly, and distorted, and she had all but the barest corner of her eye on the word she was writing. Robert changed. She caught just a corner of it, just a frightening glimpse of Robert's face changing into something different. She whirled around, face white, barely noticing the protesting stab of pain in her back. Robert looked at her blandly, questioningly. His hands were neatly folded. The first signs of an afternoon cowlick showed at the back of his head. He did not look frightened. I have imagined it, she thought. I was looking for something, and when there was nothing, I just made something up. However, Robert, she asked. She had meant to be authoritative, the unspoken demand for confession. It did not come out that way. Yes, Miss Sidley. His eyes were a very dark brown, like the mud at the bottom of a slow-running stream. Nothing. She turned back to the board, and a little whisper ran through the class. Be quiet! Her voice snapped. She turned again and faced them. Another sound, and we will all stay after school with Jane. She addressed the whole class, but looked particularly at Robert. He looked back with a childlike, I didn't do it, innocence. She turned to the board and began to write, not looking out of the corners of her glasses. The last half hour dragged, and it seemed that Robert gave her a strange look on the way out, a look that said, We have a secret, don't we? It wouldn't get out of her mind. It seemed to be stuck like a tiny string of roast beef between two molars, a small thing, actually, but feeling as big as a cinder block. She sat down to her solitary dinner at five, poached eggs on toast, still thinking about it. She knew she was getting older and accepted the knowledge calmly. She was not going to be one of those old lady school teachers dragged kicking and screaming from their classrooms at the age of retirement. They reminded her of gamblers emotionally unable to leave the tables while they were losing. But she was not losing. She had always been a winner. She looked down at her poached egg. Hadn't she? She thought of the well-scrubbed faces in her third-grade classroom and found Robert's face superimposed over them. She got up and switched on a light. Later, just before dropping off to sleep, Robert's face floated in front of her, smiling unpleasantly in the darkness behind her lids. The face began to change. But before she saw exactly what it was changing into, she dropped off to sleep. Miss Sidley spent an unrestful night, and the next day her temper was short. She waited, almost hoped for a whisperer, a giggler, or perhaps even a note-passer. But the class was quiet, very quiet. They all stared at her unresponsively, and it seemed that she could feel the weight of their eyes on her, like blind, 
crawling ants. Now, stop, she told herself sternly. She paused, controlling an urge to bite her lip. She was acting like a skittish girl just out of seminary. Again, the day seemed to drag, and she believed she was more relieved than her charges when the dismissal bell rang. The children lined up in orderly rows at the door, boys and girls by height, hands dutifully linked. "'Dismissed,' she said, and listened sourly as they shrieked down the hall and into the bright sunlight. "'What was it? It was bulbous, it shimmered, and it, it changed, and it stared at me. Yes, stared and grinned, and it wasn't a child at all. It was old, and it was evil, and—' "'Miss Sidley?' Her head jerked up, a little, oh, hiccuped involuntarily from her throat. It was Mr. Hanning. He smiled apologetically. Didn't mean to disturb you. Quite all right, she said, more curtly than she had intended. What had she been thinking? What was wrong with her? Would you mind checking the paper towels in the girls' lavatory? Surely. She got up placing her hands against the small of her back. Mr. Hanning looked at her sympathetically. Save it, she thought. The old maid is not amused or even interested. She brushed by Mr. Hanning and started down the hall to the girls' lavatory. A capering group of small boys carrying scratched and pitted baseball equipment grew silent at the sight of her and leaked out the door where their cries began again. Miss Sidley looked after them resentfully, reflecting that children had been different in her day. Not more polite. Children have never had time for that. And not exactly more respectful of their elders. It was a kind of hypocrisy that had never been there before. A smiling quietness around adults that had never been there before. A kind of quiet contempt that was upsetting and unnerving as if they were hiding behind masks. She pushed the thought away and went into the lavatory. It was a small tiled room with frosted glass windows, shaped like an L. The toilets were ranged along one bar, the sinks along both sides of the shorter bar. As she checked along the paper towel containers, she caught a glimpse of her face in one of the mirrors and was startled into looking at it more closely. God! There was a look that hadn't been there two days before, a frightened, watching look. With sudden shock, she realized that the tiny, blurred reflection in her glasses, coupled with Robert's pale, respectful face, had gotten inside her and was festering. The door opened, and she heard two girls come in, giggling secretly about something. She was about to turn the corner and walk out past them when she heard her own name. She turned back to the wash bowls and began checking the towel holders again. And then he... <laughs> Soft giggles. She knows, but... <laughs> More giggles. Soft and sticky as melting soap. Miss Sidley is... <laughs> Stop it! Stop that noise! By moving silently, she could see their shadows. 
made fuzzy and ill-defined by the diffuse light filtering through the frosted windows, holding on to each other with girlish glee. Another thought crawled up out of her mind. They knew she was there. Yes, they did, the little bitches. They knew. She would shake them. Shake them until their teeth rattled and their giggles turned to wails, and she would make them admit that they knew. They knew. They... The shadows changed. They seemed to elongate, to flow like dripping tallow, taking on strange, hunched shapes that made Miss Sidley cringe back against the porcelain washstands, her heart swelling in her chest. But they went on, giggling. The voices changed, no longer girlish, now sexless and soulless and quite, quite evil. A slow, turgid sound of mindless humor that flowed around the corner to her like river mud. She stared at the hunched shadows and suddenly screamed at them. The scream went on and on, swelling in her head until it attained a pitch of lunacy. And then she fainted. The giggling, like the laughter of demons, followed her down into darkness. She could not, of course, tell them the truth. Miss Sidley knew this even as she opened her eyes and looked up at the anxious faces of Mr. Hanning and Mrs. Crossan. Mrs. Crossan was holding a bottle of sharp-smelling stuff under her nose, Mr. Hanning turned around and told the two little girls, who were looking curiously at Miss Sidley, to go on home now, please. They both smiled at her, slow, we-have-a-secret smiles, and went out. Very well. She would keep their secret. For a while. She would not have people thinking her insane. She would not have them thinking that the first feelers of senility had touched her early. She would play their game until she could expose their nastiness and rip it out by the roots. I am afraid I slipped, she said calmly, sitting up and ignoring the excruciating pain in her back. A patch of wetness. This is awful, Mr. Henning said. Terrible. Are you... Did the fall hurt your back, Emily? Mrs. Crossan interrupted. Mr. Hanning looked at her gratefully. Miss Sidley got up, her spine screaming in her body. No, she said. In fact, something seems to have snapped back into place. It actually feels better. We can send for a... Mr. Hanning began. No physician necessary. I'll just go on home. Miss Sidley smiled at him, coolly. I'll get you a taxi. I always take the bus, Miss Sidley said. She walked out. Mr. Hanning sighed and looked at Mrs. Crossan. She does seem more like herself. The next day, Miss Sidley kept Robert after school. He did nothing, so she simply accused him falsely. She felt no qualms. He was a monster, not a little boy, and she would make him admit it. Her 
back was in agony. She realized Robert knew. He expected that would help him, but it wouldn't. That was another of her little advantages. Her back had been in constant pain to her for the last twelve years, and there had been times when it had been this bad, well, almost as bad as this. She closed the door, shutting the two of them in. For a moment she stood still, training her gaze on Robert. She waited for him to drop his eyes. He didn't. He gazed back at her, and presently a little smile began to play around the corners of his mouth. "'Why are you smiling, Robert?' she asked softly. "'I don't know,' Robert went on, smiling. "'Tell me, please, Robert.' Robert said nothing. He went on, smiling. The outside sounds of children at play were far off, distant, dreamy. Only the hypnotic buzz of the wall clock was real. "'There's quite a few of us,' Robert said suddenly, as if he were commenting on the weather. It was Miss Sidley's turn to be silent. Eleven, right here in this school. Robert went on smiling his small smile. Quite evil, she thought, amazed. Very incredibly evil. Please don't lie, she said clearly. Lies only make things worse. Robert's smile grew wider. It became vulpine. Do you want to see me change, Miss Sidley? he asked. Would you like to see it right out? Miss Sidley felt a nameless chill. Go away, she said curtly, and bring your mother and father to school with you tomorrow. We'll get this business straightened out. There, on solid ground again. She waited for his face to crumble, waited for the tears and the pleas to relent. Robert's smile grew wider. He showed his teeth. It will be just like show and tell, won't it, Miss Sidley? Robert, the other Robert, he liked show and tell. He's still hiding away, way down in my head. The smile curled at the corners of his mouth like charring paper. Sometimes he runs around. It itches. He wants me to let him out. Go away, Miss Sidley said numbly. The buzzing of the clock seemed very loud. Robert changed. His face suddenly ran together like melting wax, the eyes flattening and spreading like knife-struck egg yolks, nose widening and yawning, mouth disappearing. The head elongated, and the hair was suddenly not hair, but straggling, twitching growths. Robert began to chuckle. The slow, cavernous sound came from what had been his nose, but the nose was eating into the lower half of his face, nostrils meeting and merging into a central blackness like a huge, shouting mouth. Robert got up, still chuckling, and behind it all she could see the last shattered remains of the other Robert, 
howling in maniac terror, screeching to be let out. She ran. She fled screaming down the corridor, and the few late-leaving pupils turned to look at her with large and uncomprehending eyes. Mr. Hanning jerked open his door and looked out just as Miss Sidley plunged through the wide glass front doors, a wild, waving scarecrow silhouetted against the bright September sky. He ran after her, Adam's apple bobbing convulsively. Miss Sidley! Miss Sidley! Robert came out of the classroom and watched curiously. Miss Sidley neither heard nor saw. She clattered down the walk and across the sidewalk and into the streets with her screams trailing behind her like banners. There was a huge blatting horn and then the bus was looming over her, the bus driver's face a plaster mask of fear. Air brakes whined and hissed like dragons in flight. Miss Sidley fell, and the huge wheels shuddered to a smoking stop just eight inches from her frail, brace-armored body. She lay shuddering on the pavement, hearing the crowd gather around her. She turned over, and the children were staring down at her. They were ringed in a tight little circle, like mourners around an open grave. And at the head of the grave was Robert his little face sober and solemn, ready to read the death rites and shovel the first spade of dirt over her face. From far away, the bus driver's shaken babble. Crazy or something. My God, another half a foot. Miss Sidley stared numbly at the children. Their shadows covered her and blocked out the sun. Their faces were impassive. Some of them were smiling little secret smiles, and Miss Sidley knew that soon she would begin to scream again. Then Mr. Hanning broke their tight noose and shooed them away. Miss Sidley began to sob weakly. She did not go back to her third grade for a month. She told Mr. Hanning calmly that she had not been feeling herself, and Mr. Hanning suggested that she go to a reputable, uh, doctor and discuss the matter with him. Miss Sidley agreed that this was the only sensible and rational course. She also said that if the school board wished her resignation, she would tender it immediately, although it would hurt her very much. Mr. Hanning, looking uncomfortable, said he doubted if that would be necessary. The upshot of the matter was that Miss Sidley went back to her class in late October, once again ready to play the game, and now knowing how to play it. For the first week, she let things go on as ever. It seemed the whole class now regarded her with hostile, shielding eyes. Robert smiled distantly at her from his first-row seat, and she did not have the courage to take him to task. Once, while on playground duty, Robert walked over to her, holding a dodgem ball, smiling. There's more of us now, he said. Lots, lots more. A girl on the jungle gym looked across the playground at them and smiled as if she had heard. Miss Sidley smiled serenely, refusing to remember the face changing, mutating. Why, Robert, whatever do you mean? But Robert only continued smiling and went back to his game. Miss Sidley knew the time had come. She brought the gun to school in her handbag. It had been her brother Jim's. 
He had taken it from a dead German shortly after the Battle of the Bulge. Jim had been gone ten years now. She had not opened the box that held the gun in more years than that, but when she did, it was still there, gleaming dully. The four clips of shells were still in the box, too, and she loaded carefully the way Jim had showed her once. She smiled pleasantly at her class, at Robert in particular. Robert smiled back, and she could see the murky alienness swimming just below his skin, muddy, full of filth. She never cared, wondering just what was impersonating Robert, but she wished she knew if the real Robert was still inside. She did not wish to be a murderess. She decided that the real Robert must have died or gone insane, living inside the dirty, crawling thing that had chuckled at her in the classroom and sent her screaming into the street. So even if he was still alive, putting him out of his misery would be a mercy. Today we're going to have a test, Miss Sidley said. The class did not groan or shift apprehensively. They merely looked at her. She could feel their eyes, like weights, heavy, smothering. It's a very special test. I will call you down to the mimeographing room, one by one, and give you your test. Then you may have a candy and go home for the day. Won't that be nice? They smiled empty smiles and said nothing. Robert, will you come first? Robert got up, smiling his little smile. He wrinkled his nose quite openly at her. Yes, Miss Sidley. Miss Sidley took her bag, and they went down the empty, echoing corridor together, past the sleepy buzz of reciting classes coming from behind closed doors. The mimeograph room was at the far end of the hall, past the lavatories. It had been soundproofed two years ago. The big machine was very old and very noisy. Miss Sidley closed the door behind him and locked it. No one can hear you, she said calmly. She took the gun from her bag. You or the gun. Robert smiled innocently. There are lots of us, though. Lots more than here. He put one small scrubbed hand on the paper tray of the mimeograph machine. Would you like to see me change, Miss Sidley? Before she could speak, the change began. Robert's face began to melt and shimmer into the grotesqueness beneath, and Miss Sidley shot him, once, in the head. He fell back against the paper-lined shelves and slid down to the floor, a little dead boy with a round black hole above the right eye. He looked very pathetic. Miss Sidley stood over him, breathing hard. Her scrawny cheeks were livid. The huddled figure didn't move. It was human. It was Robert. No. It was all in your mind, Emily. All in your mind. No, 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 no. She went back up to the room and began to lead them down one by one. She killed twelve of them and would have killed them all if Mrs. Crossan hadn't come down for a package of composition paper. Mrs. Crossan's eyes got very big. One hand crept up and clutched her mouth. 
She began to scream, and she was still screaming when Miss Sidley reached her and put a hand on her shoulder. It had to be done, Margaret, she said sadly to the screaming Mrs. Crossan. It's terrible, but it had to. They are all monsters. I found out. Mrs. Crossan stared at the gay-clothed little bodies scattered around the mimeograph and continued to scream. The little girl whose hand Miss Sidley was holding began to cry steadily and monotonously. Change, Miss Sidley said. Change for Mrs. Crossan. Show her it had to be done. The girl continued to weep uncomprehendingly. Damn you, change! Miss Sidley screamed. Dirty bitch! Dirty, crawling, filthy, unnatural bitch! Change! God damn you! Change! She raised the gun. The little girl cringed. And then Mrs. Crossan was on her like a cat. And Miss Sidley's back gave way. No trial. The papers screamed for a trial. Bereaved parents swore hysterical oaths against Miss Sidley, and the city sat back on its haunches in numb shock. Twelve children. The state legislature called for more stringent teacher examination tests. Summer Street School closed for a week of mourning, and Miss Sidley went quietly to an antiseptic madhouse in the next state. She was put in deep analysis, given the most modern drugs, introduced into daily work therapy sessions. A year later, under strictly controlled conditions, Miss Sidley was put in an experimental encounter therapy situation. Buddy Jenkins was his name. Psychiatry was his game. He sat behind a one-way glass with a clipboard, looking into a room which had been outfitted as a nursery. On the far wall, the cow was jumping over the moon, and the mouse was halfway up the clock. Miss Sidley sat in her wheelchair with a storybook, surrounded by a group of soft, trusting, totally mindless, retarded children. They smiled at her and drooled and touched her with small, wet fingers while attendants at the next window watched for the first sign of an aggressive move. For a time, Buddy thought she responded well. She read aloud, stroked a girl's head, picked up a small boy when he fell over a toy block. Then she seemed to see something which disturbed her. A frown creased her brow, and she looked away from the children. Take me away, please, Miss Sidley said, softly and tonelessly, to no one in particular. And so they took her away. Buddy Jenkins watched the children watch her go, their eyes wide and empty, but somehow deep. One smiled, and another put his fingers in his mouth slyly. Two little girls clutched each other and giggled. That night, Miss Sidley cut her throat with a bit of broken mirror glass and Buddy Jenkins began to watch the children. So it was down there in the darkness, 
it's not dark. I mean, there is a bulb in the room. And there's also a lamp attached to the bed that I could have turned on if it had been that dark. I went through the story from beginning to end, and I gave it my all. And after finishing a performance that would make Stefan Rudnicki wet his pants, I looked at the recorder, and it was off. What had happened was that the battery ran out. I don't know if the settings, the two settings on my recorder, if one takes more power than another does, but I had chosen to record in the high quality audio setting, which you are not hearing right now. You know, you have the two options. You have an, an MP3 recording. It's a low quality MP3 recording or a high-quality, uncompressed wave recording. And that's how I do my audiobooks. That's how Abigail Hilton always wants me to send my chapters to her. And they're massive. And it probably takes more battery power because it ran down the battery and it was done. And, and I just, I said, oh, no. And in that moment of saying it, I heard the thunder in the distance. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting, because I didn't hear any while I was reading. I was so focused on the narration that I, that I didn't hear any of it. So I got a second battery. Oh, and it was, it was shocking, guys, to come upstairs, because it was pitch black down. Not, okay, not pitch black. It was like an hour after sunset black down in the basement. And then I came up here, and it was... 10 minutes after sunset, dark, up here, despite it being fairly early in the day. So that, that's something that I find interesting. I got a battery, I went back downstairs, I turned on the recorder and found out that, oh goodness, I, I had gotten 85 to 90% of the story before it shut down, which is so good to hear. So I only had a couple minutes left of recording, and I, I did it with no hitches at all. Fewer mistakes, I'm sure, than the first time. And then came upstairs and started recording. And just not even one minute into my recording, my cell phone started to play a song. Eyes of the Stranger by the Paolas. The cell phone was not on me. The cell phone was sitting across the room. It just started to play on its own. Now, it, it has done that before, probably two or three times before, and I don't know why it does it. But it was, uh, you know, it's unsettling. And the song is kind of creepy, and so that's what I've chosen to uh, use to accompany this story for you. And I don't own the Paola song either, so I probably shouldn't do it, but Let's talk about Suffer the Little Children, if you will. Now, this is a story that King wrote when he was at the height of his talent. If I had to guess, I would say it was 71 or 72 when he wrote this. And I'll, I'll put a note what the year was in the show notes. And King's first short story collection, Night Shift, came out, I want to say, in 76 or 77. It could be 78, but it was one of those three years, and it ran a little bit long, according to his editor. And the editor said, 
let's cut a story. Let's drop a story from this collection. And King said, there's a story called Gray Matter. Let's drop that. And his editor said, let's drop Suffer the Little Children. And King said, yeah, okay, fine. Whatever you say. And it wasn't until King's third short story collection in the 90s that Suffer the Little Children got collected. And I had never read it, but I remember reading it. This would have been, I want to say, end of 1994, beginning of 1995. And just thinking it was, it was excellent, thinking it was wonderful. And a couple of stories later in the collection is a story called The Ten O'Clock People that is similar in its tone in, in that there are beings that look like people, but they are not people. Those just captured my imagination. I've talked about it before. But I just, I love that idea of monsters that can look like people. I don't write about it all the time, but I, I keep coming back to it over and over again. I just, oh my gosh, it is one of the things that most grabs me, it most attracts me. In 2021, which is when I'm recording this, I wrote a book, which is not really titled. I also kicked around the title Exact Duplicate and Unexact Duplicate. What I wanted was a story that meant unidentical and then put it with twins. And I, I, I never came up with the title that I wanted, but it has the premise of two girls that are identical twins and they're best friends, they're super, super close, and one goes off on a field trip for school it's the first time they've been apart for that long. And when she comes back, Layla, the main character, thinks that her sister has changed. She starts to watch and pay attention, and she starts to suspect that it is not her sister. Now, I'm not saying that this story would not have been written if it weren't for Suffer the Little Children and the Ten O'Clock People, except for it probably wouldn't have. Uh, it also wouldn't have been written if I hadn't met a girl who was very, very nice, who was an identical twin, and she would answer questions for me about what that was like and just the remarkableness of identical twins. I'm endlessly fascinated with that, too. So I got to combine two things that I'm super fascinated with, but I don't know if you are fascinated by the idea of twins like I am but like both girls got married within a six-month period to each other but both of them got pregnant at the exact same time and both of them had their babies within 24 hours of each other even though one of them was due a week before the other she had her baby late and the other one had her baby early so that they could almost have had their kids on the same day. That stuff is, it makes my mind just spin. But that's not what we're here to talk about. I haven't even considered putting out Unidentical Twins yet. I, I'll tell you what, give me a title that works better than Unidentical Twins, and I will get to work on publishing that. 
because I don't think it's a bad story. It's just got a bad title. No, I'm here to talk about Suffer the Little Children. Miss Sidley was her name and teaching was her game. Cards on the table, there is a professional audiobook version of this story out there, and it was narrated by Whoopi Goldberg, an Oscar award-winning actress. Miss Sidley was her name, and teaching was her game. She was a small woman who had to stretch to write on the highest level of the blackboard, which she was doing now. Behind her, none of the children giggled or whispered or munched on secret sweets held in cupped hands. They knew Miss Sidley's deadly instincts too well. So I don't feel like my reading could be better than Whoopi's. But I'm sure that it is different. There are things that I do that she wouldn't have done. There are things that I really like about narration. Uh, you know, skills that I have honed. It's a very special set of skills that I've honed over a career that make me a nightmare for people like you. It is, though, that there are things that I have discovered that I like about my voice or about performing. And one of those things is the long pauses that I take and the way that I will go at a very slow pace and then speed up and get louder and faster. And it's just something that I do and not a lot of audiobook narrators do it. It is something that Frank Muller did, and maybe that's why I feel like he's the greatest audiobook narrator ever. I hope that you like the way that I performed Miss Sidley and the Children. I considered doing, like, giggles for the girls and giggles for the boys and doing, like, some kind of reverberation with it and echoes and stuff like that, but I chose not to. And it's simply, I think, that the... The text works just fine in itself, and I don't think I could do justice to it. If you've got actual children, if you've ever heard Bless This House by Jerry Goldsmith, which is the theme to the movie Poltergeist, he has children giggling at the end of the performance. And they're actual children, and it's super unsettling, and I just... You know, the sound of children's laughter is terrifying to me in a way. But the sound of an adult pretending to be a child is not terrifying. It, it's one of my pet peeves. I just, I, I have certain things that I hate. And one of them is adults doing the voices of children in animation and and I understand, dude, I totally understand that you want a performance and sometimes it takes an adult to convey the kind of performance that would be really, really difficult to produce in a child. But like, like my nephews will watch The Loud House and as far as I know, the kids are actually voiced by kids and they are wonderful. But they have a baby sister who is voiced by an adult Every time I hear that voice, I say, that's not a kid. Stop that. That's not a child. That's not a baby. And I, you know, eventually I will go insane over that. 
because the Loud House shows no signs of ever letting up. Its popularity is constant, and so it'll be one of those shows that has 10, 11 seasons. We're supposed to be talking about the King story. The story is actually very short. How long was the reading? About 30 minutes, 33 minutes? That's my guess. And so I don't know that you could adequately make it into a film, but King's short stories tend to translate better to film than his novels do, because you have to cut out so much for the novels. His novellas, his short stories, they, they work best for a 90-minute film or a two-hour film, you know, or Shawshank Redemption's case, like a two-and-a-half-hour film. I know that people have done short films of this story, and I, it's doable, but you would have to get actual children that can be creepy. And then how do you do the transformation? I mean, the, the answer is obvious. You do it with computers. But the way he describes it is just like melting candle wax. I don't know. Everybody sees that in their heads differently, right? I don't know. And, you know, he talks about like the no, the sound coming from the nose of the voice. I just... I don't know what that would look like. I was going to say, I'll tell you what, I'll go watch one of those YouTube videos and see how the adaptation worked, see if it worked or not. Because, look, if you're doing it as a student film, you can't afford to do big, expensive computer animation, even though that has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Yeah, I just, I don't see how you do it. If, if I did it when I was in school, what I would do is I would probably get a mask, a Halloween mask of a person, and I would like melt it and just have like a flash of that melted face, maybe put it on the child actor and have the child like move his hands or whatever. And you see it for like a second or less. And all of the horror is the music and the reaction on Miss Sidley's face. That's, that's how I would do it. But A, how do you do that as a student? It was such an uphill climb to get anybody to help with anything in school. I almost cursed just now because it was an ordeal. And there were people that made their student films and stuff like that and I don't know how they did it. They had a way with people, a way of getting people willing to help them that I was not capable of doing. You have to be a people person or employ a people person to do it for you, to get people to give up their evening or their weekend to help you with this stuff. And, and there were a couple of teachers that were age appropriate that you could have gotten to be Miss Sidley. But yeah, me, I never, ever could have gotten that done. We would have had to have held auditions and got an actress who was willing to do that. And I think that that would have been possible. But boy, the uphill climb of doing a Stephen King story at my school. It wouldn't even have been worth it to try. It would have been really cool. It's a short, short story, and we would have whittled it down way shorter so that you could do it in like a 10 or 12 minute narrative. 
but it was beyond the scope of what I was capable of then or now. I had a script that I really, really wanted to present. I had written it and I said, you know, this is something that is doable here. It was set at the school. It would be easy to produce. It was only college students that would have been in it. And no one was interested in producing it. And I asked my friend Ian if he would direct it for me. And he said, well, I, I, I don't know. And I said, listen, I don't have much money, but I will give you $100 if you will help me produce it. And he said, well, he said, I, I'm pretty busy. I just, you know, the times. And I said, okay, look, I don't know how I'll pay you this, but I will give you $1,000 if you will do this for me. And he said, no. And that to me is just a, a, a very interesting story because for $100, he said, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty busy. But for $1,000, he said, no. And yeah, where would I have gotten $1,000 in those days? But I was willing to do it. I mean, I had some Star Wars guys that I could have sold and they were worth a lot of money in those days. Maybe I could have sold them and, and gotten him the money to do this. That never got produced, and it's not one of my regrets. I had things that I was super passionate about that I worked really, really hard on, and they didn't get produced. This should all be an outtake. I'm sorry. <laughs> on with the countdown. Children, monster children, really scare me. And I did write A Mark on the Sky, which is about benevolent monster children. So, you know, it is something that I come back to again and again, but I, I think I have switched it up a few times. And, and if I live another 40 years, or, oh, come on, kid. If I live another 20 years, 25 years, I think it's probable that I will come back to this again and again in my own writing. It's just something that is interesting to me. There, that, you, you find things that, capture your imagination and if you're if you're lucky you can capitalize on them you're a successful enough writer that people want to read your stories about this thing that interests you king has gone back to the theme of evil children a couple of times so maybe it's something that he is fascinated by as well i hope that you have enjoyed this story i love presenting stories that I am passionate about, that really speak to me, that are entertaining or funny or scary or moving to me. I hope that it comes through in my narration and I hope that you uh, support me and would like more from me and encourage me to do more. Thank you for joining me on this very, very gray afternoon. And Rich Outfield is the name. Podcasting is my game. Thanks to Gino Moretto for his generous work on the logo. The music in this episode was created by Kevin McLeod whose shenanigans can be found over at Incompetech.com. 
This particular episode of the Rish Outcast slash the podcast that dares not speak its name is for you and you alone. Let's not stink up the internet with its unpleasant taint. Hey! In past years, she had called her sister to talk to somebody after a dream or a particularly bad or a or a particularly bad particular particular particularly or a particularly bad or a particularly bad panic attack i want to say or something i think i overuse or something i do too all right i got to use the word phenomena i'll bet i've never used that word before it had been an interesting phenomenon I love it. oh I'm, I'm glad in a building that was rife with interesting phenomena